This is episode 49 of the Creative Giant Show. Jaquette Timmons joins me to talk about finding your financial sweet spot. Let's do this. Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Jaquette Timmons is a financial behaviorist and works with everyone from the middle class to the 1%, helping them figure out how to connect their money to life in a real and meaningful way. She helps her clients blend the emotions of money with the math of money, let go of their money baggage, and start to move forward with financial goals more clear, confident, and in control than ever before. Jaquette founded Sterling Investment Management Incorporated and is the author of Financial Intimacy, how to create a healthy relationship with your money and your mate. Her work has been featured on CNN, HLN, Fox, Black Enterprise, NPR, and The Wall Street Journal. Jaquette's on the show because I was intrigued by her background as a financial behaviorist and because it's been my experience that we all need to talk more about our money and how we make our financial decisions. The more we talk about our money, make better decisions about it, and learn not to make it a special category of our lives that we need to hide from others, the more we can thrive. Jaquette, thanks so much for joining me on today's show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Alrighty, so we're going to start with the origin storage just because it brings us all in. So how did you start your road as a financial behaviorist? It was totally by accident, um, not very intentional, which I think uh, happens for a lot of folks. Um, but it's interesting because on the day on which we're having this conversation, you know, the stock market has had a lot of volatility. And I vividly recall October 1987, and that was what we now refer to as Black Monday. And that, on that particular day, interestingly enough, the market fell 500 points and people lost their minds. And I had a, a very interesting uh, view, if you will, in that I saw and witnessed people that if they could have jumped out of a window, they would have. And then, then there were others that were very calm about it. And so I didn't have the language back then to describe it the way that I would today. But that was really the first time a seed was planted or my antenna went up that there's something else going on other than money. Because if it were just about the money, everybody would have a universal reaction to it. And that wasn't the case. So I think that that was the first seed of me understanding that there were different elements to it and that there was an emotional aspect to it and therefore a behavioral aspect to it. I think to punctuate that was also then my experience working in the private bank where I managed money for high net worth individuals. And that was also my springboard for creating my own firm because that's what I did initially as well. And really just recognizing that the number of commas you had behind a one and the number of zeros really at the end of the day didn't differentiate people from the standpoint of everybody wanting to have control, wanting to feel confident, and wanting to feel safe. And then finally, I think the the thing that just weaves it all together for me is the, the death of a really dear friend of mine who was like a brother I never had. And he passed away the day after his 41st birthday of a brain aneurysm. And he was married to my college roommate. 
And I got to see up close and personal how one's grieving can be interrupted by what you don't know about your significant other's finances. And if it had just been that one event, it probably would have just been more personal and I wouldn't have really extended it beyond that. But what ended up happening is a month after his passing, another friend, their father passed away. And that's when her mother discovered that they were $500,000 in debt and that wasn't their mortgage. And then on the heels of that, I was working with a coaching client who on paper was the epitome of financial success, a Wharton MBA, working on Wall Street, high six-figure salary, and yet she fought all the time with her then living boyfriend about money. And as we began to peel away the layers, what we discovered was that it wasn't so much that she was reacting to him so much as she not wanting to replicate what she saw happening in her parents' relationship around money. And because of the fact that these all happened literally lockstep with one another, it made me pause and ask the question, well, what conversations are college-educated professional women, in particular in this case, not having during what I call pillow talk time, that they don't have a clue what's going on in their households around money? So I think individually, all of those speak to how I came to this, this, uh, this apex, if you will, of focusing on behavior, but it's certainly the, the concatenation of all of those that just really amplified not only my fascination with human behavior, but human behavior in the context of money. That's fantastic. There's so much there that we're going to come back to. Um, but before I go on, you know, we hear the term financial and behaviorist enough, but not so much together. So a financial behaviorist. So what does a financial behaviorist do? I look at the numbers. So I don't discount the numbers because I do have my MBA in finance. So I am a little bit of a quant person. <laughs> but I look at the numbers and then I also observe just in terms of what people tell me, what people tell me verbally, what people tell me in terms of uh, the questionnaire responses that they provide. And I kind of match them up to just kind of look at, well, what are you doing? What are the choices that you're making? And a behaviorist is really looking at your choices and the actions that you were taking and what are the motivations behind that. So hopefully that answers your question because that's really what I do <laughs> is look at yeah. what are you doing? What are you saying? Um, and that also gives me then some insight into what are you thinking and then how does that show up in your numbers? How does that differ than say like a behavioral economist? I think a major difference is that the behavior economist, behavioral economist mm -hmm. is focused on theory and mm -hmm. I'm in the trenches actually working with people, whether it's individuals or couples, one-on-one -on -one in my coaching practice. I do a lot of workshops for corporations, for nonprofit organizations. I do a lot of speaking engagements for conferences, et cetera. And so I think the main difference is that I'm not just focused on doing research and looking at the theoretical part of it. I look to the research to help support the anecdotal experiences that I know clients are actually bumping up against in their everyday lives. Okay. So it seems like, I'll, I'll paraphrase. So when we look at someone like Dan Ariely with Predictably Irrational and things like that, they're largely focused, you know, uh, well, I was listening to an audio course and it was, uh, what is it? Economics is the, uh, the most 
imperialistic of all the human sciences or all the social sciences because it tries to cover everything, right? It's right, a, exactly. Right, where maybe the financial part is just your focus just on how people work with their money as opposed to how they make their decisions at large. Exactly. exactly. Alrighty. Um, so I think you'll probably agree that the way in which we make decisions about money is not rational in the sense, and, and you, you mentioned it earlier, if it were just a rational thing, you wouldn't have some people that we're at, at our current time right now with the stock market plummeting. Some people are rejoicing because they're like, I'm going to buy a bunch of stock, right? Exactly, exactly. Other people are like, oh no, this is the worst thing ever. And other people are just kind of like, I don't know how to feel about anything. Right? <laughs> exactly, totally ambivalent. <laughs> right? And so if it were a, pre, a, a completely rational thing, we wouldn't see this divergence in human behavior and responses to it, right? Totally correct, yes. So... I'm curious, in your experience, in what ways does the belief that we should make rational decisions about money actually cause us problems as if we understood, than if we understood that it's a more irrational process, that it's a more emotional process than a purely rational one? I always find it ironic when, when there's a, an analysis of the market. And someone will always say that the market doesn't like uncertainty. <laughs> and yet. <laughs> and yet. <laughs> that is what this is all based upon because no one has a crystal ball. So I think it's just really interesting that uh, people don't realize or don't tune into the fact that what happens to us on a very individual basis is the exact same thing that happens to us when we look at it collectively. So if you're not tuning into the fact that uh, the decisions that you make are based on a, a myriad of other things on an individual basis, then wouldn't you presume that that same uh, process applies when you're looking at quote unquote the market in general? And the fact that we kind of bifurcate that is, is another element of fascination for me, but you hit it right on the head. You mentioned earlier that especially college educated professional women aren't talking about the money and maybe they don't know what's going on in their financial house. And, you know, as I was thinking about that and thinking about, the fact that, or the belief, the myth that, that financial decision-making is an inherently rational one, which in some ways, maybe not now, but 20, 30 years ago, um, seemed to predispose women to not, it, it was like men are rational, women are irrational, right? That type of thing, which was definitely much more, much more prevalent in the past. I think there's still enough of that in our society. Do you think that that's playing into part of this reason why, um, Women, well, let me put it, let me back up. Um, from your work, what are, if we can say that there are gendered challenges with financial decision making, what do you see as the prevalent trends, but the prevalent trends and differences between the way men make their decisions around money and the way women make their decisions around money? So I would say that one of the things that I found really fascinating as I was doing my research is that while what prompted my inquiry, let me just make sure I just talk. What prompted my inquiry was the fact that, you know, there were three women in particular, and then I looked around and realized, oh, there are a lot of other women bumping up against this as well. So that prompted my inquiry in terms of wanting to research it deeper. But what I realized is at the end of the day, 
it's really a human nature thing. So it's not gender specific. Mm-hmm. However, that said, the ramifications of not being in tune with your money, not asking questions, not being on top of it, that is very gender specific because women tend to outlive men. Um, more women end up at some point in time being single at some juncture in their life. Um, and so therefore they have to make uh, financial decisions that may not only impact them, but also if they have children or if they're responsible for other financial, uh, um, I'm sorry, for other family members, etc. So the, the decisions that have to be made are not gender specific, but the ramifications of when you don't make proper decisions cost women more than it does for men. So is that largely because of the, um, the earnings gap and the care and the, well, you know, the literature well enough. So there's the earnings gap, which women just aren't earning dollar per dollar what men are, but there's also the caretaker tax, right? Where women end up in there and you put both of them together um, and they create a scenario to where it's harder for women to recover for, from financial setbacks. So or, explain it a little bit more. So it's the, the earnings gap that you speak to. It's going back again to the just longevity issue of outliving uh, your spouse or your significant other. It's um, the financial responsibilities of if you end up divorced or if you end up a widow prematurely um, of, you know, handling the family's finances. And then it's also taking on that role sometimes of not only taking care of your parents, but also perhaps taking care of other family members. And that oftentimes will fall to a woman. Okay. So let's talk about the surprising things that that you learned or that you work with women on or work with people on that like you think more people should be thinking about that so that they're not surprised and end up in a scenario where um, they're disadvantaged financially or, um, they're not making good decisions, but just let's talk about the surprise moments that you've seen pop up in people that we're just not thinking enough about. I think part of the problem is that we, we think we're talking about money because we are talking about transactions, but we're not really having conversation. And that's when you discover that you haven't been having the conversations that you thought you were having. And you know, this, this is really interesting. I was on a flight um, just last week and ended up speaking with the, a woman that was my seatmate. And she shared the story of how her, her father, you know, she came from a very wealthy family. Her father had a business and uh, made a really bad business deal and then wiped out everything. So whereas she thought that she would, you know, inherit a trust fund, she absolutely inherited nothing. She's 68 years old. And so what she thought she would have as a springboard, she didn't have. She goes to school. She goes to graduate school. She marries. Her husband's a doctor. He uh, dies unexpectedly at a very young age. Uh, They also end up losing a lot of money um, during the 2008 crisis. And when she took a step back and, 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 and the other piece that I'm leaving out is that she, she and her sister ended up really taking care of her mother. And then when she looked at over the course of her entire adult life, how much she has uh, contributed to taking care of her mother, 
the number was $650,000. And when I, when I say the, the thing about what you think you're doing versus what you are actually doing, it wasn't until she took a step back and she added up the numbers that she really realized what the total amount was. And if she had been having different conversations with her mother, with her sister, they might have made different choices and she might not have had to come out of pocket all of that money to help take care of her mother. Maybe they could, I don't know what else they could have done, but it's this whole notion of sometimes you don't even realize what you're doing until after the fact. And a, a large part of that is because you're not having the conversations that you actually think you're having. That's fantastic. So I, I think, um, the overall message is that we sometimes confuse having transactional conversations about money with really having substantive conversations. And so we have no clue about other people's beliefs about money, their values about money, their expectations with it. And I beg to say that sometimes we don't even know that answer for ourselves. And th therefore we can't really engage in a conversation in a constructive conversation with someone else about those things. Um, that would be one thing. And then another is that I think sometimes we, we tend to think of conversations around money as the talk. Like there's only one conversation, one talk to be had as if, you know, as, as opposed to, I should say, thinking about it as it's an ongoing discussion, it's an ongoing conversation, and it has a beginning, but it does not have an end. Why is that? Because if this were the talk about chores or the talk about our sexual preferences or the talk about kids, like we don't have that one talk. We, it's an evolving sort of thing. We understand that. Why is it with money? Do you think that it's like one and done? We just get in there, we have the talk and, and we're good to go now. Yeah. I think part of it is because one still money has that taboo um, of being very personal as well as being very private. I think, the other thing is we have so much of our identity rolled up into what the numbers say about us or what we think the numbers say about us. And so if we're not earning as much as we think, we're embarrassed by that. Um, if we have a lot of debt, um, we are embarrassed by that. And it doesn't help that, you know, you turn on any sort of media outlet and you're being hit on the head about, you know, you're bad for being in debt <laughs> um, as opposed to, well, you may, have made, you may have made a bad decision, but that doesn't make you a bad person. So I think so much of our identity, our self-value, our self-worth is tied up in money. And so to talk about that with someone else really makes us vulnerable in terms of just like peeling away the layers around how you may have arrived at the way you think or the way you approach money. And I think also just this notion of is some, how is someone going to judge us? And we all want to be accepted at the end of the day. And we all want to be judged well. And if there is anything about our financial history in terms of our choices that makes us seem anything less than stellar, we kind of want to keep that hidden. Yeah, so I was thinking about the story you shared about the woman who spent, what was it, $650,000 taking care of her mother? Um, yes. Which, on the one hand, seems like a staggering amount of money. Mm -hmm. um, over the course of 15, 20 years, it's not actually hard to do, right? No, and, and actually for her, it was even more than that. It's probably more like 40 years. Um, 
and I think that becomes the crux of it because I'll give a, a less a less ominous um, way of thinking about it. So we have older cats, right? They're getting to that age where we're having to start making decisions about when it's time to let them go and send them home, you know, those types of things. Mm-hmm. And one of the tension points between my wife and I is how much are we going to spend propping up a cat that we need to let go, right? Because you reach a certain age. It's funnier to talk about cats than parents, but I'll get there, right? You reach a certain age where it's like, really, are we going to pay five or $6,000 a year to do this, right? And we have, as you might imagine, different perspectives on that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's our pets, right? That, that's just our cats, right? When it comes to parents and things like that, obviously, you're not going to send them home early because you're broke. But there are different choices one might make, right? And I think that's where it gets troubling is because they're the ways in which we want to treat people that may not be, may not make, it may not put us in a position where we financially can do it. But then there's shame and guilt around that, right? Or, or what have you oh, experienced around that? Yeah, totally, totally, totally. And, it, and, and it's interesting. Um, as someone who has just de- developed a fondness for cats <laughs> in the last, you know, eight years or so. Where have you uh, been, Duckette? Seriously. <laughs> I'm on the bandwagon now. Okay, good. <laughs> the cat overlords are happy. Exactly. Um, at the end of the day, I mean, what you're really talking about are the choices around what we do to care for people and things that we love and care for. And animals, in my opinion, they are part of the family. So I, I, I don't make a huge differentiation other than the fact that, you know, there are some decisions that you would make and you would say, without a doubt, you would do X for a family member and you might be on the fence when it comes to uh, a pet. But at the end of the day, it still, it still, you know, tugs at your heart and it makes you, you know, think about how do I do X? And at, so I think the bigger, not the bigger, but I think one of the questions embedded in your question is this, how do I make a financial decision to take care of someone that I love or to take care of a pet that I love and not do that at the sacrifice of some of my own goals. And I would imagine that the friction that you are referencing in terms of having two different perspectives is really the priority in terms of if we put 5,000 toward taking care of this cat who is older in age and probably won't be around for whenever, could that money be used over here, wherever over here is, and actually be of a greater long-term benefit. And that's a freaking hard choice to sometimes make. And I think that's the other thing. I think part of the problem is that we expect some of this stuff to be easy, and we don't just say, you know what, this is freaking hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, I'm thinking of the R&B song. I don't know why I'm thinking of, like, Mama told me there'd be days like this, but, like... Yeah. I don't know that mama did tell us that there are days in which you're going to have to make hard, hard financial choices in a way. Uh, I was fortunate in that I grew up poor. Well, what's it makes me fortunate. I learned budgeting very, very early because I, I did the budgeting for my house when I was like 12 and 13 and things like that. Cause I was good at math and just uh-huh. helped my mom out in that way. So I learned very early. You've got to make tough choices. Like, right. you know, how are we going to eat this week versus um, do we keep the electricity on? Like those types of choices. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, granted, those are still easier choices than 
uh, are we going to spend, you know, are we going to put mom into this really nice retirement home that's going to cost, you know, six figures or are we going to like go with the one that's going to be within the mid five figures that we can afford, right? So electricity versus food, that's, that's a smaller one, right? Um, that one's a hard one, you know? I totally get it. I totally, totally, totally get it. And um, not only is it hard, but it's not universal. So you might be struggling or whomever might be struggling with that kind of a trade-off and choosing the latter is what really makes the most sense for them, not only financially, but also emotionally. But for someone else, choosing A as an option is what makes sense for them, not only financially, but emotionally. And I think part of the challenge when it comes to uh, money advice and people seeking money advice is really getting at the root of what's the best thing for me and getting beyond what I call the generic how-tos and the generic approach and this whole idea that one way will work equally well for everyone. And that's just so untrue. You mean there's no one size fits all for this? Nope. Oh man. <laughs> that means we're going to have to do like priority exercises and values exercises. Yeah. Come on now. Totally, totally, totally. I mean, the math is the math, right? Two plus two will always equal four. You can't get around that. But the things that influence the parts of those equations will, or the parts of that equation will be different for everybody. And, and that's the part that I think is the most fascinating. Um, and that's the part that I like to play with when I'm working with people. Alrighty. So give us a few go-tos. Like if we're, if we're struggling with a particular financial decision, like not the one size fits all go-to, but give us, if you can, a quick process for really figuring out in this murky situation that is different for different people, like how to really um, check in with ourselves and, and make the decisions that's right for us. I know hard question, but um, you seem to be good at hard questions. Well, thanks. Um, well, one thing I would do is spend some time just observing, like just do some self-observation. So a part of that, as weird and wacky as it sounds, is really just some journaling and spending some time to say, okay, if I do X, how am I going to feel a month from now, three months from now, nine months from now? If I do Y, how am I going to feel same time period? It's all conjecture, but if you get it out and you get it out on paper and you're actually able to then look at it, it will help you to, instead of the decision being emotional with the emotions pushing you, it's still emotional. That doesn't change, but you're in the front leading that decision. And you can say with a lot of confidence and with a lot of clarity that I took a step back, I wrote it all out, and I'm making this decision, and I'm making this decision because of A, B, and C, and this is why I feel good about this decision. If you have it written out like that, whether the decision is right or wrong really doesn't matter. It's the fact that you went through a process to come to a decision, and that was something that you worked out on paper, and not just in your head, and not just in your heart, which 
when you keep it in all inside like that, it helps, it doesn't help you, I should say, and it prevents you from being as objective as possible about something that is very emotional. So that would be the first thing I would do. Okay. After that? The second thing that I would do, and this really kind of depends upon what is sparking the, the analysis that you're doing, is track your money, but not for the purposes of budgeting. Track your money to just get a sense of what is your pattern of behavior. What, not only what are you spending your money on, but when are you spending it? How are you feeling when you're spending it? Are you spending it on something that you want or you need? or that you need? Um, are you spending it to make you feel happy because you're sad about something? Um, are you spending it to satisfy somebody else? So you're tracking it, yes, to get to the numbers, but it's more to get to the story behind the numbers. Like, why are you doing what you're doing? And if you do that, that will help to give you a sense of not only what you have, but what you tend to do with what you have and why. And that will also help to give you a sense of framework around when you were making a choice, especially one that you described in terms of, do we go to the six-figure retirement home or the five-figure retirement home? It will kind of help you figure out where does this decision fall in that spectrum as it relates to how I have been historically managing my money and making decisions. So it looks, by tracking it, you're looking at not only the basic financial decisions that you're making, but also the more sophisticated ones that you're making. And you might not even realize that you're doing that. Does that make sense? It does. How should one, I hate to use the word should as a, as a coach, should should be banished from our language. <laughs> how might one um, think about their, um, well, when you, so let me pause. When you do any sort of pattern um, tracking like this, what you recognize once you dig under there is that you're making these, you're making these choices based upon the way that you feel, mm -hmm. right? Um, emotion drives action is the way that I say it. Emotion always drives action. Mm -hmm. And so I've observed as a coach, not a financial behaviors, but as a coach that some people are really critical over um, about the fact that those choices were emotionally driven. They're like, that's not the type of person I want to be, or they feel shame or regret or whatever that might be. Um, how, how do you advise clients to work through that particular situation when they recognize how much of this, how much of their action is caused by emotions that they may or may not want to acknowledge or feel comfortable with? I think the first thing is really getting them to recognize that, um, everything about money is emotional. <laughs> um, and that applies to all of us. You know, the degree might be different, but none of us can escape the fact that money is emotional and everything about it is emotional. And when we think about our particular emotions, I think we need to tap into, I call it uh, three different tiers, if you will. You know, what is influencing it in terms of your family background? You know, what are you doing as an adult today that you said you weren't going to do because of what you saw growing up? Or perhaps you said you are going to do because of what you saw growing up. So that's one pillar, right? Your family dynamics. 
I think you also have to recognize that um, we are all influenced by what's going on socially, economically, and politically. So I put that in like the social dynamics pillar, if you will. And then from a personal standpoint, we have to think about how do we feel right now based upon the choices that we've made and the consequences of those choices, some of which we're happy about, some of which we aren't happy about, but why are we happy? And why are we unhappy? Because sometimes you can make the right choice and still end up with an unappealing result. <laughs> so are you only measuring the results or are you also looking at the process by which you got to that? So I think first getting people to recognize that there's just no way of extracting the emotional part out of it. Um, is one part of it or one layer of it. And then I think the, the other layer is really just trying to tap into, well, where do those feelings come from? And what's influencing that in that moment that's causing you to feel the way that you currently feel? Great. I'll add here, this is general coaching, right? I'll add that to don't try to erase away your emotions. I know you've said this in a different way, but acknowledge mm -hmm. like I'm doing that because it makes me happy. I'm doing that because it makes me feel like a good sister. I'm doing that because it makes me feel these certain ways. And you don't need another justification. You don't need a more rational justification than just that. Right. 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 Totally. Totally. And I think the other thing is we're so uh, judgmental and the self-judgment, I think if we just, if we audited our thoughts and looked at how often throughout the day, the comments that we had about ourselves were positive versus negative, we would be astonished <laughs> by how hard we are on ourselves. And if sometimes we just cut ourselves a bit of a break, and that doesn't mean that you, you, know, you just become a lazy slob and don't do anything, but just cut ourselves a little slack, <laughs> I think we'd be better off for that. Absolutely. Let, let's pivot a little bit and talk about your book, uh, Financial Intimacy, How to Create a Healthy Relationship with Your Money and Your Mate. Mm -hmm. um, so you've got all these like you know, planning um, businesses going, excuse me, financial planning and financial um, coaching. And you have all this sort of work that you're doing with your clients and investing. And then there's this book idea that comes along. So how, how did that come about that um, just made you realize that now was the time to write the book? Because as you figured out probably midway into the process, it's not an easy ordeal to finish a book. You know? <laughs> totally. It wasn't an easy ordeal to get it done. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, the thing about it is, and I want people to know this about books, but like everybody wants, not everybody, a lot of people want to write a book. Yes. Um, seems like a great idea. Um, and then you start the book and you realize it's this completely different thing. So really, when you start a book, know that you really want to write a book because it can, it can be fun. It could also be hard. It could be both at the same time. So that's my, my, that's my spiel about books. Let's talk about your book journey. Oh my goodness. So... Um, I, I shared at the top of our conversation the, the three scenarios that really kind of uh, cumulatively put the spotlight on uh, recognizing that there's a behavioral piece to it, to, to money that is. And the book idea really was an evolution as well. I started doing these workshops called Women, Money, and Romance to kind of explore, well, what's going on? Like what's not happening during pillow talk time? 
And no matter how many times I experimented with the format or the length of time, it just never seemed to be enough um, for women to not only get answers to their questions, but also to vent about their experiences. And we have to remember, like, this is pre- now the whole notion of financial intimacy is much more in the public domain and common vernacular, but we got to go way back <laughs> before this all happened. Um, so this is like early 2000s when this is all coming to fruition for me, or the idea is coming to fruition for me. And so I, you know, did these workshops and realized, well, maybe there, maybe I should really explore doing something more than just workshops. And I went and looked at what books were already out there. And I saw that there were some books that talked about love and money. Um, but if they did, they either focused more on the money and not enough about the love, or they focused more on the love and not enough about the money. And if they did do both, then they, they focused on it from a, a, a religious standpoint. And I'm a Christian, I'm a, I'm a Christian, and so I don't have a problem with that. But at the same time, I was like, well, there's more than one way to live a life, number one, and not everybody's married, number two. And so where's the conversation around single women or same-sex relationships or widows or divorce or people living together? How do those folks manage this intersection of love and money? So that's what I was curious about exploring. And so the book came about from initially wanting to understand specifically what is it that professional college educated women are not bringing to the conversation but I also wanted to take a social critics perspective and look at how our discourse around money has changed over the last 40 years economically politically socially and in terms of just how family dynamics have been altered and where does that leave us in terms of how do we show up in relationships with our own money, and then how do we show up in relationships in the context of merging that with someone else? And so that was really what I wanted to explore, and that's what I wanted to provide a roadmap for people to use as a benchmark for having the conversations that I think we often skirt because they are really uncomfortable at the end of the day. <laughs> cool. Well, what has been the most surprising bit of feedback that you've gotten about your book? I think the most surprising feedback has been people seeing themselves in other people's stories. I think we, we, money is personal, but at the same time, it's universal. And when we're going through something, we think that we're the only ones going through it. And we think that we're the only ones who have it, quote unquote, as bad as we might be experiencing it. And when, you know, using the stories of the people that I profiled in the book, it allowed other people to see themselves in other people's stories, whether their situation was exactly like theirs or not, they could at least see themselves in it. And I think the biggest thing is that, like, recognizing I'm not alone. Yeah. Um, recognizing you're, lot, you're not alone. And that's the thing, right? Because we don't talk about it. It's easy to feel like whatever you're going through, like you're alone. Yes, um, totally. Or I've experienced this too some far off people that are completely in some ways, unlike you have that same problem too. Right. right. But it's not your next door neighbor. 
Right. right? It's not right. your coworker, who, right. right? Who, right. you know, doesn't want to open her credit card bills either. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and so I think it's that familiarity of, of both seeing that this is a common struggle, but it's a, it's a common close struggle. It's a common right. close thing. Right. Um, which I think is the upshot, right? Because if your neighbor can figure it out, you can figure it out. Right. Totally. Totally. I mean, that's how I feel like when it comes to business, like sometimes when I'm having a challenge, I'm just like, all right, if somebody else could figure this out, then surely you can. (laughs) And when I look at, you know, just from an ancestral standpoint, I'm like, no matter what challenge you have, Jacquette, there is nothing that you are dealing with that is as challenging as what your ancestors went through. So get over it and figure it out. But I think that what ends up happening to just, piggyback on what you were saying is that part of the challenge when it comes to money is we have a tendency to only talk about our successes, mm-hmm. but we don't talk about our failures. And I think if um, we could selectively, of course, be a little bit more transparent about that, that would also be really helpful in realizing that, oh, the person next door, two doors down not only have they gone through it, but this is what they did to address it would be really helpful. Yeah, I could speak from personal experience on that. When you talk to your friends about the numbers, like the actual numbers that you're dealing with, whether it's your credit card debt or your student loan debt and what those numbers actually are, Mm -hmm. it's a powerful way to build friendships and it's a powerful Mm -hmm. way to get the help that you need. It's just really in a lot of ways terrifying. Like we'd rather show all sorts of other things than, than show, you know, our current net worth, you know? Yeah. And you know, it's so funny because I have a, um, I have an accountability group and we have been together since probably, uh, 2000, maybe even going back as far as 1999. And the whole purpose of us coming together was to talk about our money and to talk about, um, what we have, what we don't have, what our challenges are. And as a financial behaviorist and financial coach, that was really important to me because I needed an outlet to be able to share, okay, this is what's going on. This is not as perfect as I would like it to be, or this is not perfect at all, (laughs) but I needed to have that outlet to be able to express that so that I could actually show up more authentically for my clients. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to start wrapping things up, but there's this one thing that I wanted to pull out that, that really intrigued me. Um, you said financial success doesn't start in your wallet and what embracing that really means. Like what, and in other words, you believe that financial success doesn't start in your wallet. Talk to us a little bit more about that. I think whenever we are experiencing a financial problem, if we have a financial question, Um, or even if we have a financial desire and we're trying to figure out how do we get from point A to point B, our default is to go to a how-to that is technical in in its basis. So how do I save more? How do I earn more? How do I invest better? How do I spend with a little bit more wisdom? And that how-to is always something that is outside of us. Whereas, and there's research to prove this, and this research comes from the Carnegie Institute of Technology. 
And they did a study, and from that study, what was revealed is that 85% of your financial success comes from how well you lead, how well you negotiate, how well you communicate, and your own personality, and only 15% comes from your technical knowledge. And yet, what most people default to is how do I increase my technical knowledge? as opposed to how do I increase my financial self-awareness and then how do I use that as the springboard for getting the question that I want answered for helping me to come up with a variety of solutions that will help me to solve that problem or a variety of solutions that will help me shorten the length of time from, from point A to point B for the desire that I have. So the whole idea of financial success doesn't begin in your wallet is to get people to really pause and remember that the thing that you are more than likely going to default to is the thing that's going to actually lengthen <laughs> the time between where you are now and where you want to be because that's not the part of the equation that contributes the most to your success. Yeah. Another way I might say that is like, if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to keep getting what you're getting. Right. And so <laughs> um, do something yeah. different. Right. Exactly. Um, because learning more probably is not going to help you. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But the hard part about that is for most of us, learning more is what got us to the point of success that we've arrived at professionally and academically. And so it's counterintuitive that learning more when it comes to money wouldn't be the thing that would contribute to your success when that has been the case in every other area of your life. So it's kind of hard to reconcile that difference. Yeah, it's, it's hard to reconcile, reconcile that difference until we realize how few classes we had in personal finances. <laughs> Our personal yeah. finance. How, how few classes we have in time management and productivity, all these types of things that like we don't know until we figure out five years after the fact, wait a second, that would have been useful to learn. Like Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Exactly. But, you know, it's really funny because, you know, growing up, my, my, my mother, uh, bless her soul, uh, she died last year, August. So um, I'm just really reminiscent of a lot of the lessons that she's been teaching or that she taught me and that I am relearning as I clean out her house. Yeah, I think you would appreciate this. I found a ledger uh, that she had from 1972. My mother was a professional singer. And uh, in 1972, this ledger had every single college at which she sung that year, how much she earned, how much were her expenses, how much she paid the babysitter who, who took care of me while she was on the road, and how much um, her agent needed to reimburse her for. It's totally fascinating. <laughs> Will you send that to me, please? No. <laughs> Totally fascinating to come across that stuff. And now I have completely forgot where I was going with the point. Oh, darn. I'm sorry. <laughs> classes oh, in college. Uh, oh, that's it. Okay. Upbringing. So, uh, yeah. So classes. Back on point. <laughs> back on point. So um, one of the things growing up, my mother would make me save 50% of my check, whether I was babysitting or working at the mall. And now that's a little unrealistic to do living in New York City today. Um, but the whole, my point is that the things, it would have been helpful to have a class simply to plant the seed, but I think it's unrealistic to think that we would have paid attention. 
<laughs> so I think it's important that, you know, uh, high schools and colleges certainly add the curriculum, the topic to their curriculum so that the seed is planted. But I do think that it's unrealistic to think that as a young teenager or a young adult, that you're actually going to follow all of that. It's after you have lived some time and then you're like, oh, shoot, I remember such and such. Maybe I need to go back and start practicing that. <laughs> yeah, there's a, I'm an Eagle Scout. And so one of the things you have to do, there's a merit badge that you have to give around personal finance. And I'm so appreciative of that. Like I didn't use most of it when I was like 18 to 25. But after that time, I was like, you know what? I've actually learned this stuff, right? I just need to apply a lot of it. And I right. wish I would have been doing that for the last seven years, but hey, there yeah. you go. Um, and so I think it's just one of those things where, um, it's a lifelong learning thing where you learn it in your teens and then you learn it in your twenties again. And then, you know, kids. And, and if you take that path in your life, that's a whole other sort of thing you need to learn about. And then there's the end of career sort of not in late middle, late career moves that you need to make financially that are different than you ever had to make. Mm-hmm. That's normally coinciding with parent care and how you're going to make those types of decisions and getting your kids off the couch. So there are just these sort of, milestones in your life financially that just you, you're playing a different financial game, and totally. it's, you know? Um, and it's great if you play the earlier games well, right? Because then you're not playing, <laughs> playing this game and you're, you know, in a certain situation, but just understand that it's a lifelong process in that way, you know? Yes, absolutely. And to recognize that being smart with money is a skill. And if you look at it from that standpoint and you recognize then that, every skill needs to be refined. And so you remember that you've got to, you know, have a refresher every now and then on particular things. I think that that helps to not, to not only, let me rephrase that. It helps so that you don't fall into the trap of the one conversation and forget it, but it also helps to avoid falling into the trap of doing it and forgetting it or setting it and forgetting it and never going back and, and looking at, well, is what is, are the choices that I made in the past or the actions that I took in the past, are they still relevant and helpful for me today? And will they still be relevant and helpful to me tomorrow? So having, you know, something in place that just organically and perhaps even automatically reminds you to check in and tune in and to make sure that your skill set is on, on, on point, uh, I think is just as a, as a habit <laughs> that, you know, we, we just all need to cultivate. And, and I think we would all just do ourselves a service if we remember that it is a skill and just like doctors and just like, you know, attorneys have to go for those CE credits, we need to have, have the same mindset when it comes to our money. That's fantastic. Okay, so you've got everything figured out, Jacquette, right? You've got your money figured out. You've got your business figured out. So I've got to ask, what's the most unanticipated challenge that you're currently facing? Oh, God. Well, for me, it would be business. Um, and it would be figuring out the right business model. Um, I, I always say to folks, you know, starting a business is really the easiest decision to make. It is making the commitment to stick, to stick with it and, you know, to have the perseverance to stick with it and to not give up. Um, and I think a part of that for me has been, 
trying to figure out what is that, what is my sweet spot in terms of my business model. And I will say that that's the piece that I am surprised that it is taking me as long as it has to figure it out. <laughs> and I won't say that I have figured it out in totality. <laughs> it is still a work in progress. Um, and maybe, maybe that's my lesson. Maybe I need to get more comfortable with that. And I'm not. <laughs> Why aren't you? I mean, let me put it this way. Because what you were just saying around... Um, the need for successive levels of financial awareness as, as your situation changes is also from a business strategy, like myself point of view, it's also true about your business. There's no point in which you will have your business 100% figured out. Hate to tell you that, right? It's, yeah. <laughs> it's whether you're, you know, 60% figured out or 30% figured out, right? That, that becomes the hard part, right? Yeah. So what is it about that lack of certainty, I guess? that, that, um, troubles you? Um, I think the last, for me, the last couple of years, my message hasn't changed, but I think how I go about expressing that has. And so the last couple of years, uh, have been all about rebranding and re-engineering. And I think I am wanting feedback <laughs> that the choices that I've made are the right choices um, faster than they're coming through. <laughs> Maybe I don't like the feedback that I'm getting. I'm not quite sure. But I think it is um, an issue of making some changes and feeling okay with giving, uh, giving those changes some time to breathe and yeah, give me those changes some time to breathe and let me know if, in fact, I did the right thing as opposed to doing something, not liking the feedback, and then changing, and maybe I didn't give it enough time. So I think it's, the, the, I'm in a questioning phase of, well, how much time do I need to really give this to see if I've made the right choices? Does that make sense? It makes total sense. Um when I wrote um, my book, The Small Business Life Cycle, it's one of the things that we talk about. And as your business matures, that feedback cycle lengthens. And so, right, you go from having a two-day cycle, you put something out there and everybody loves it, right? That's, a, that's fantastic. And then it goes, you put something out and two months later, you figure out that it worked. And then it's two quarters later. And then it's two years later. <laughs> exactly. And so, you have successive sort of um, practice with patients, you know, as right. you get more and more. It's like, really? I have to wait two quarters? Yes, you have to wait two quarters. <laughs> what do I do in the meantime? I don't know. Have a life, you know. <laughs> I know, right? Do the work. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, so if people remember nothing else about you and your body of work from this episode, what would you want it to be? I would want it to be the message of money is never just about money and that your financial success doesn't start in your wallet. So for every question that you have, every challenge that you bump up against, every desire that you have, don't uh, fall into the temptation of wanting to increase your technical knowledge. First, look at what do you need to know about yourself and your behavior around money that will help you to either answer that question that you're, you know, you're prickled by, address that problem, or... Um, satisfy that desire. Alrighty. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jacquette. Oh, thank you so much, Charlie. I had a blast. 
Okay, Creative Giants, so you heard it. What do you need to learn about yourself, your values, your preferences, and your wants and needs that will help you solve whatever financial or I would expand it to whatever life choice that you have in front of you? Think about that for a little bit. And until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to The Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.